Pat Reardon, you're an Irish Jesuit living and lecturing in philosophy in Heathrop in London in England. You've just come over yesterday and, of course, the living in the midst of the awful news of what happened at the Manchester Arena, the dreadful tragedy of the bomb that has taken the lives of 22 mostly young people, some children, and horrific injuries to others. How does one make sense of it? I don't think we can make sense of it. It is a dreadful, a dreadful event, and obviously one cannot but be moved by the scenes of children killed and injured and their parents and those who are distraught not knowing what has happened to them and and so on. I think we have to be very careful though in how we respond to these events. There was also that other event in, in London several weeks ago with the, the man mowing down people on Westminster Bridge. Of course we'll have to reflect and think about it. One of the ways in which in the Catholic tradition we have thought about such events is in terms of what has become known as just war theory. Can this kind of thing ever be justified? And one of the ways in which we've dealt with this sort of problem is to say it can never be morally right or justifiable to directly attack innocent people or people who are not threatening you. Obviously, when there's a threat against you or your own family or your own people, when it's an immediate and vicious armed threat, then why not defend. In fact, there are people who are obliged to defend us and our society and others, and it is justifiable to do so under certain conditions, obviously. It is possible to take up arms to defend, but it is never justifiable in our tradition to take up arms to directly attack what we call innocence, so people who are not harming you, not threatening you, to directly attack non-combatants. Now, one of the real problems we have with the engagement between the Catholic or the Christian worldview and the Islamic worldview is on this point. And some of my good friends who are Muslims, who are devout Muslims, with whom I discuss these matters, they are torn by this problem that they experience. And, of course, we see that as well. Many of those who are responding to this crisis want to say, not in our name, not in our name. It's not in the name of Islam that this is to be done. The tragedy is, as my friends admit to me, that in the tradition of jihad, there is no category of non-combatant. There isn't a category of the innocent who should never be attacked. Because that jihad worldview comes from a time when wars, fighting, was normal. It was acceptable. It was part of the overall environment and it was always a matter of us against them and them were always the enemy the whole society the whole community of those who were other was an enemy and those who saw themselves as fighting on behalf of islam were defending their worldview against the other which was seen as threat and representatives of a western culture western music western art western styles of behavior western liberties these can be seen by the extremists among the muslims as threat as the enemy which they feel entitled to attack and to kill because they are other now how could a young person, 23 and so on, directly attack children, youngsters, uh, young teenagers? It's because they have been imbued with that mentality that they are justified themselves in taking up arms and killing directly the other. 
It's horrific, it's horrendous, but I think we make a big mistake in simply dismissing it as evil if we are not engaging with the worldview that animates this. And what we also have to recognize is that there are really decent, good, faithful Muslims who themselves are struggling with this and trying to come to terms with the fact that at the heart of their ancient tradition is a divisiveness between us and them where armed attack against the other seems to be justifiable. And you make a point there that has struck me when you talk about this young man. It wasn't just violence against those people. He he violated himself. He blew himself to bits as well. And part of that is part of the thing you talk about, an ideology there that is all-encompassing that in some way provides all the answers. So there are no questions. This is clear. They're the enemy. They are clear. They're the other. And here's what's also clear. You will go to your great reward when you've done this. So everything is sewn up. And that's a very worrying thing because life is just not clear like that. Yeah, you put it very well. The friends that I speak of, my my Muslim friends, one of the problems that they have is that their faith, their worldview is being hijacked by the extremists of Daesh or ISIS or the other Islamic groups who want to use violence as the way to achieve their aims, including their spiritual religious aims. And the Muslims that I know, with whom I am in dialogue, they are of the view that life is complex, as you put it. The goods that we share together and for which we work and that we build, construct to make uh, of use to everybody... They are complex and rich and varied. It's not all simply reducible to obey the law and go to heaven. It's much more complex and rich. And what they have to find is some way of ensuring that their faith is not hijacked and defined in the public mind by these extremists. And I'm thinking of Max Weber, who in his later life wrote an article about ethics. He drew a distinction between the ethics of conviction which would be say, this is what I believe, it's non-negotiable, it's, to, you know, it is a total vision. But he says always had to be trumped by an ethics of responsibility, and that responsibility is first and foremost to the welfare of your fellow human being. Well, do remember that that distinction is made in the context of his discussion of politics and, and politicians and those who have responsibility in public life, that their first obligation is to exercise responsibility for the common good. Now, Max Weber formulates it in, in that way with that distinction, but of course it's there already in our classical traditions like Thomas Aquinas, who understands law to be for the common good made by someone who has responsibility for the community and promulgated. So our politicians or our leaders in society have a responsibility to care for the good of all and not simply to take up a banner in the name of their own particular ethos or, or worldview and say, we will ride roughshod over all of you. I mean, one of the ways in which this arises is in the current debates in Britain about a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit or whatever. 48% of the electorate voted to remain in the EU, but the popular press and the Conservative government, led by Theresa May, want to speak in terms of the people that people have decided. Well, now, 52% of those who voted decided 
to leave the EU. But there are 48% who are still members of that political community who have to be catered for and cared for. And the political authorities have to exercise, exercise a responsibility for all, not just for the 52%. Now, that's going to be a very difficult thing for them to do, but it is a case in point. Max Weber would say to them, it's not right simply to follow an ethic of commitment. You are all committed to leaving the EU and go for that gung-ho. You must have an ethic of responsibility. Care for the common good that includes that minority, 48%, a big minority, that voted against. And of course, we also have the definition of who others are, and you talked about non-competence. I mean, you look at Syria and you look at the innocent children that are suffering there, dreadful gas attacks. They are not exempt either, and yet... It seems to be sometimes that we only, when it hits the West, really rise up in in arms and really get exercised. All of the killing of innocent children and non-combatants, no matter where they're from and who they are, is wrong. Isn't that what a just war theory is saying? The just war theory is addressing those who, because of their responsibility, are in a position of having to take up arms and saying it is never justifiable for you directly to attack innocents, including children. But that's in the context of recognizing that if you use weaponry against an enemy and an enemy is hiding behind a cordon of civilians, now you may not know that they're there, you may not know how many are there, but there will inevitably be civilians' non-competence killed by your action. The point in just war theory is to say, don't directly attack them. And if it is the case that you might have to take on board the fact that some innocent people will be killed. There's an issue of proportionality. How important is it for the the success of your war effort or the success of the campaign that you take that burden on, that risk of killing innocent people by accident, not deliberately? There has to be proportion as well as discrimination. These are the two big principles in how to conduct just war. And it gets very murky because we we do know that, and it has been evidenced that Assad's people have targeted hospitals on a, a, a regular basis. Bringing back to another point you raised, but it struck me as you were talking, we didn't always have such a nuanced theory. And there were times in Christianity when awful things were done and justified as an ideology and justified in terms of the, a, a Christian mindset that was equally all-encompassing. One of the areas where that sort of problem arose was in the colonization of Latin America. So the Spaniards and the Portuguese going off and conveniently at times wanting to say that they were justified in imposing on the the native populations of those countries. And it did involve big theological debates. Now, even if it was the case that some of those conquistadors and the, the people who supported them did so with the cross in one hand and the sword in the other, and claimed the authority of Catholic monarchs for doing it in the name of the faith, we have to remember that there were serious theological and philosophical debates going on where prominent theologians and philosophers were challenging this self-serving ideology that was being used by, by these powers to pursue their own ends. And unfortunately, that is been the case that the Christian communities, Catholic communities have been divided on these matters. So it's, we have to be very careful in reading history, looking back in history and thinking, well, simply it was, it was badly done. It was badly done by some, but not by all, and very often against 
the, the, the correct judgment and application of church teaching. I think of the Dominican Las Casas and others who challenged the predominant view that the natives of Latin America were subhuman and therefore they were not entitled to rule their own uh, domains in their own way. And uh, it was people like the, the Dominicans and then also the Jesuits who set up the reservations there in Paraguay in order to ensure that they would have a form of protection against the encroaching uh, oppressive powers of the, the Spaniards and the Portuguese. But of course we'd be burnt heretics and told them it was for their own good. Their, their souls would be saved if their bodies burnt. Well, that's an example I've used in order to, to, to illustrate how we have had to learn about our misconceptions of the past. There's always been this ambivalence in the church. Once the church became linked in with secular power, it always tried to excuse itself. The church excused herself by saying she would hand over to the secular power, so the civil authorities, uh, those who were to be punished for crimes. But the crimes that they were considering were also crimes of heresy. Now, why should heresy be thought a crime? Back in that day, it was understood that anyone who jeopardized the unity of the civil community was threatening the survival of that civil community. And somebody who was teaching untruth was jeopardizing that unity. Now, from our perspective today, where we enjoy the liberties of a secular civil world, we see this as unintelligible. And we have had to learn that the idea of handing over heretics to be burned, which was justified by some as right because the body was simply matter that could be disposed of. The main thing was that the soul was saved. And uh, by burning the body, it was hoped that the person would repent and recognize the temporary pains of death were as nothing compared to the eternal pains of hell. Now, we could never think that way now. So we have had to learn to change and, and to grow out of what were misconceptions. And that's partly the reason why one can hope that the young, good Muslims I've referred to, with whom I'm in dialogue, who are recognizing the real problems that there are in their own tradition, will learn to develop out of that and to develop better ways of being faithful while meeting the demands of a contemporary world. We should be able to help them then because we have been through this ourselves and I'm not sure we're totally out of the woods in terms of a Christian fundamentalism, but I'm also thinking of, in particular heretics were burned under the Inquisition and over a period of 300 years hundreds of thousands of people mostly young women were burnt as witches at the stake and you had to tie them up, put the kindling around them, light a fire and literally watch a body melt. I mean today we're struggling with saying how could somebody go in and blow themselves up and do that but they were able to do that too and crowds gathered around to watch and this was done in the name of God and by men who ruled and passed sentence. Yeah, you're pointing out a very real phenomenon there. Public executions in England were a, a public entertainment, not for religious reasons, but ordinary secular uh, hanging for stealing sheep and so on. These were opportunities for public entertainment, and we have to face the fact that the populace thronged to such events because it was not simply something horrendous and, and pain-inducing, but somehow entertaining for them. Now, do you know the work of Friedrich von Spee, Calcio Criminalis? He, he was a Jesuit yes. in Germany yes. who, from his experience of being confessor to many of those who were th accused as witches and burned, he uh, undertook this writing in order to challenge 
the practice and the wisdom of what was being done. But it was very interesting that his whole challenge was on the basis of ordinary judicial procedures. Can you actually prove what you are claiming to be able to prove that someone is a witch? And by applying ordinary logic, he undermined the, the claims of the, the prosecutors and whether civil or religious, that they had plausible cases to bring against such people. Now, it took a long time for, for that to, to register and to bring about the ending of the, the witch trials. And it is the case that the establishment uh, was very slow to respond. And the establishment, of course, was made up not only of the, the civil authorities, but the ecclesiastical authorities as well. We are very slow to revise and unlearn our habits of thought with which we are familiar and comfortable, that they seem so plausible to us because they are the way we've been trained to think and which is all the more reason why we need to have ongoing, constant theological reflection, philosophical reflection, challenging the things we take for granted. And it strikes me, just to, f to finish, that that reflection would be very helpful if it was done in interfaith dialogue along with our Muslim brothers and sisters because we have a lot to learn from and share with each other. Well, it is happening in interreligious dialogue and it is happening in many intimate conversations. But a big question is, can it happen in the mass media? As soon as the Daily Mail gets a headline, putting on the headline what young Muslims are prepared to admit to me that there is something flawed in their classical texts, dialogue goes out the window immediately because they will be pilloried. They will be pilloried, and they'll be pilloried not only from the Western press, but also from their own communities who are all too quick to see betrayal and heresy. And you know when you talk about the classical texts, in, in our Bible we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you can see in many ways that the New Testament, Jesus says, I use an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I say to you, no of the, the other cheek. And we haven't time today to get into a whole discussion about pacifism and those who would, Christians who would argue that there's no such thing even as a just war. But is there any equivalent in the Muslim classical texts that you know of where there is a shift that might help them not to be as conflicted about what the classical text says and then what they know is wrong? Well, I'm not prepared to be the, the authority that speaks on behalf of, of Islam. And I think that's something that uh, all non-Muslims should be very cautious about and certainly I haven't qualified, I haven't become qualified in that field. It's much more an issue for people of that faith to come to terms with the problems within their own tradition. And one of the things that we can contribute in the dialogue, we Christians, is to admit the, the flaws in our own history where we have learned. And that can be a, a source of encouragement as well for people to take on board real questions and live with them and perhaps come to, in due course, some resolution. In the meantime, our thoughts are with the people in Manchester. You're going back there tomorrow. Yeah. I presume they will respond and are seen to be responding with the resilience they've shown in times past. Yes, please, God. All grieving takes a long time. And for those who have lost children, sisters and brothers... Those wounds perhaps will never heal, but please God, they will grow to seeing uh, what has happened as a step on the way for humanity to learn to live together in peace.